from Washington, D.C. This is On the Ground. On today's show, medical and legal experts speak out on the long-lasting impact of separating migrant children from their parents. The executive order to end the damaging practice of unnecessarily removing vulnerable children from the buffering protection of their trusted caregivers was an important first step. However, we have an obligation to address the harms that are currently facing the children who have already been subject to this policy. Without intervention, they are at high risk for both short and long-term health consequences. And a Virginia community mourning a murdered teenager organizes to keep other teens safe. We speak to Veronica Yanga, director of the organization Not a Runaway. Your child is either labeled as an abductee, which means somebody witnessed her being snatched, or she's a runaway. There's no gray area for a child that simply goes missing. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And the safety and lives of children and young people tops our news. Immigrant rights attorneys reported this week that a toddler died shortly after being released from a U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement Detention Center in Dilly, Texas. They say the girl died due to possible neglect at the facility, which has received negative reports from human rights observers. A Houston lawyer, Mana Yangani, tweeted late Tuesday that, quote, the child died following her stay at an ICE detention center as a result of possible negligent care and a respiratory illness she contracted from one of the other children, end quote. Yangani added that the girl had a grandmother in New Jersey. An ICE spokeswoman told the Washington Post that the agency did not have a name or more specific information about the incident in order to research it. The Dilly facility, which is located an hour southwest of San Antonio, is the largest of ICE's three family detention centers and houses up to 2,400 people. Earlier on Tuesday, the Senate Judiciary Committee held a hearing on the ongoing crisis of 700 migrant children still separated from their parents, including more than 400 children whose parents have been deported, and of those 400, 90 children whose parents cannot be located by the Trump administration. Senator Dianne Feinstein, Democrat of California, is one of several lawmakers who blasted the Trump administration policies and called on Kirsten Nielsen, head of Homeland Security, to resign or be fired. 431 children remain alone in the United States because their parents have already been deported. Shockingly, the government does not even know who or where the parents are for 94 children. This makes clear the government did not track them in the first place. There was no effort to ensure the government knew which children belonged to which parents and where they were located. Another 67 children were not reunified with their parent because of some red flag in their background. However, we don't know whether this flag had anything to do with the safety of their child. An abuse or neglect allegation or rather some other reason that may be irrelevant to separating the child from his parent. And these are only the children and families we know about. 
Protesters, including mothers with children, attended the hearing, holding up signs that read Abolish ICE and Families Belong Together. The high school students who launched the March for Our Lives movement for sensible gun policies are heading back to D.C. on Saturday, August 4th for the March on the NRA, which will shut down the street in front of the National Rifle Association located at 11250 Waples Mill Road in Fairfax. Or protesters will join sister marches around the country. The students are demanding an end to inaction by lawmakers as every year, More than 32,000 Americans have their lives cut short because of guns. Demands for the August 4th march on the NRA include universal comprehensive background checks, a federal digitized searchable database, stopping access to downloadable gun blueprints online, congressional funding for the CDC to complete gun violence prevention research, a ban on high-capacity magazines, a ban on assault weapons, and a revocation of the NRA's tax-exempt status. Also on August 4th is the first annual Missing Children Awareness Day, which will begin 10 a.m. at the Springfield Town Center in Springfield, Virginia. The event is in honor of Jolie Musa, a 16-year-old Virginia girl who was reported missing in January and then found murdered two weeks later. There has still been no arrest made in connection with the murder of Musa, who, according to family, was communicating with someone on the app Snapchat before she disappeared. Musa's aunt, Veronica Ayenga, director of Not A Runaway, Inc., said the event will highlight how current laws do not prioritize and protect missing teenagers. We want to create more awareness. So many of our teens specifically feel like they're invincible. Unfortunately, when these kids go missing, they don't always warrant an amber alert. And so what we're using Saturday as a platform to do is to really get the information out into the community about what the amber alert will and will not do, as well as provide them with all of the resources that are currently available in our community to keep kids safe and out of harm's way. Do you know why is it that missing teens are referred to as runaways most of the time? I I wish I knew what the answer was. Unfortunately, the issue right now is how the legislation is written. Your child is either labeled as an abductee, which means somebody witnessed her being snatched, or she's a runaway. There's no gray area for a child that simply goes missing. Unfortunately, the use of the word runaway has negative connotation to it because it eludes that my child is ill-behaved, has, you know, is being disrespectful, they're throwing a temper tantrum. And at the end of the day, who really wants to spend any sort of time or resources looking for a child they think is purposely trying to stay away? So we believe there needs to be another category and not runaway. Maybe it's, you know, Amber Alert for the most serious cases of abduction, but then there's something else that's happening in the middle when the child just disappears. So teens are not being reported missing right away. What's the impact on them and on their family? Absolutely. So one of the problems that happens is because a teenager has freedom of mobility, which means they can get up and leave without permission all the time. They can go to their friend's house. They're allowed to go to the mall alone, and they can move around and pretty much do what they need to do as a regular child would do without having to have um, uh, accountability to their parents every step of the way. So what happens is when that child goes missing, we naturally just assume, oh, they walked away. They think they've grown, so we're going to let them go ahead and experience the world. 
The problem is, if that child is in danger at that moment in time, we're wasting valuable time accounting for them as runaways, meaning we're accounting for them as a child that's willfully staying away, when in reality, this child could need our assistance and our help. So the impact on this is that you have a community of people that are once again looking at your child and looking at a parent and their parenting skills and wondering what's going on in your household if your child keeps wanting to run away. We really need to change that and do something different so that when a child goes missing, regardless of why that child went missing, we need to go find them and everyone needs to be involved in that child's search and recovery. And what is the impact of teens being on social media? There's a lot of benefits to using social media. We get it. But what happens is there's also a lot of creditors on the social media platform. These are people that have the intention and they want and have the desire to bring really bad harm to little girls that are unsuspecting of what the real world looks like. And so what happens is when a child jumps on a social media platform and they're not well prepared or well informed of the dangers that lurk in the shadows, they are likely to believe that the people on social media are actually really who they say they are. The problem with that is sometimes you could be talking to me on social media I can flash and show you videos of a younger person and tell you that's who I am. But when you meet me, the reality of who I am can be drastically different from who you thought I was. And so the dangers there become that, you know, we need children, especially teenagers, to just tell their family what's going on, give them access to their social media, allow us to share our world wisdom and experience with you because at the end of the day, all we want is to keep all of our children safe from harm. But that doesn't happen if you're keeping secrets and you're meeting people that you're not sharing that information with and these people aren't who they pretend to be and really bad things can happen really fast. And one more question. Do you believe that the social media led Jolie to being harmed? I don't really know how to answer that. What I do know that I can share is that Jolie was at home on a Friday afternoon mm-hmm. doing what most girls do, which is just priming themselves to be pretty. She's facing her sisters here because that's what sisters do. But she's also chatting with somebody on her Snapchat account, okay, which is, again, something a normal child would do on any given day. The difference with this day is she's in the middle of doing someone's hair and says, hey, I'll be right back. And those were the last voices anyone from our family ever heard Jolie speak. She slips on her little shoes, grabs a coat, grabs her phone, and leaves everything else behind and walks out that door. And if we'd only known, perhaps we could have locked that door. If we had only known, but we didn't. And by the time we found out, it was too late. So does social media have anything to do with it? Maybe. Was it a friend that was talking to her? Maybe. Was she set up? Maybe. We'll never know. Those are questions we don't have to share at this moment. What we're hoping is that through the lessons that we have learned in this process, we can help other little Jolies all out there that are so eager to find learn online. We're hoping that through our lessons and our painful experience, we can try to keep more of them safe so that they don't meet a similar fate or have anything like this happen to them and then go unnoticed. Okay. Thank you. Sorry for your loss. I appreciate your initiative. 
And my family decided to find a bunch of girls, and we pulled together a small group of eight teenage girls that range in age from 11 to 16 because we really needed them to talk about this subject. So, you know, the event we're doing on Saturday? Yeah. Our 16-year-olds, our 11-year-olds, our 12-year-old girls have been going around on Capitol Hill petitioning. They have created signs. They have called the police department. They have arranged this entire event for us. They've created the Snapchat. So when you come out on Saturday and you see us, it's not important for me as an adult to tell you to come, but it's really important that these girls are able to reach their peers and collectively through the work that you're doing, through this interview you just did with me, it is my goal that you can reach more sisters, more little boys, more teenagers, just like yourself, so that you can keep them safe. What you learn through our experience makes you a leader, and I hope you will take that leadership capability and ability and knowledge and go share it with your other girls who are so lost looking for love and friends in all the wrong places. And just remind them they need to be safe rather than sorry. Thanks so much for interviewing me. I really appreciate that it was you who did the interview. The murder of Jolie Musa is one of the most recent cases in the D.C. area of African-American girls missing and some murdered with no leads on their whereabouts or on their killers. 2018 marks four years since eight-year-old Relisha Rudd was reported missing from a D.C. homeless shelter where she and her family stayed. To this day, Relisha has not been found. More on the issue of missing teenagers and the August 4th event is at notarunaway.org. That's notarunaway.org. Thank you to On the Ground intern Shaylin Parham for that interview. D.C. area activists of the Poor People's Campaign protested outside D.C.'s Central Holding Jail on Monday, July 30th, telling the district to, quote, clean it up or shut it down. When faith leaders of the national campaign were detained at Central Holding in June, they emerged saying that the facility was filthy and crawling with roaches, mice and rats. They were taken to the jail after staging a prayer protest on the steps of the Supreme Court. Those arrested and detained included campaign leaders, the Reverend Liz Theo Harris and the Reverend Graylin Hagler. As you've heard over and over again, it's rat infested. Uh, as you heard over and over again, it's mice that are running in on people and roaches. And you expect it to lay down your head there. So, so again, I want to just uh, say to the D.C. government, you're not doing your job. I want to say to uh, Charles Allen, you're not doing your job. To Bowser, you're not doing your job. Uh, I want to say to also the director of corrections, uh, Director Booth, you're not doing your job. It's time we clean it up or close it down. In response to revelations about conditions in the jail, Deputy Mayor for Public Safety and Justice Kevin Donahue said in a statement to reporters that the facility is clean daily and regularly treated for pest control, but that the building in which it is housed, the daily building in Northwest D.C., needs renovation and that a solicitation for bidders to completely renovate the building has been issued. 17-year-old Palestinian freedom fighter Ahed Tamimi was just released from an Israeli prison and greeted as a hero in her village in the occupied West Bank on Sunday. She served almost eight months in jail for slapping an Israeli soldier after the soldier shot her cousin in the head with a rubber-coated steel bullet. 
Since then, Israeli soldiers have killed, injured, or detained more of the Tamimi family, as well as other residents of their village. Ariel Gold, co-director of Code Pink, was one of those gathered in front of the Israeli embassy on Monday in northwest D.C. to celebrate Ahed's release. We're going to continue supporting the legislation of Representative Betty McCollum as she calls for an end to U.S. support for Israeli detention of Palestinian children by the military. We know, and as you spoke about upon your release, that around 300 Palestinian children remain in Israeli military prison and that you feel that your freedom from prison is incomplete as long as other Palestinian children remain imprisoned and continue to be abused in those prisons. We heard you talk about how Israel tried to deny you access to an education, tried to prevent you from completing high school while you were in prison, and we continue to say that that is unacceptable and that we will keep protesting our government's support for these policies of Israel and we will continue protesting in front of the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C., where we are right now. And we will continue pushing our members of Congress and our administration to stop sending military aid to Israel and stop providing support for the crimes that Israel commits every day. And we are here to support your struggle and to celebrate your bravery and all of the work that you do and all of the work that all of the people of Palestine do. Free Palestine! Free Palestine! Ahed's jailing along with the jailing of her mother, Naraman Tamimi, was widely condemned and drew attention to the Israeli practice of imprisoning and abusing Palestinian children. According to human rights organizations, there are 350 Palestinian children in Israeli prisons and detention centers. This week's celebration for Ahed occurred the same week that the Israeli military violently hijacked a ship in international waters, tasering and assaulting the peace activists aboard. The Norwegian ship, the Al-Ada, is part of a freedom flotilla taking medical supplies and other relief supplies to Gaza with the intention of breaking the illegal 10-year-old blockade of Gaza's waters. Finally, in culture and media, in the latest debacle of Facebook's new liaison with the NATO-affiliated Atlantic Council, Facebook removed 32 pages that it claimed exhibited behavior similar to so-called Russian bots, which Facebook said were designed to sow divisions among Americans. Well, as it turns out, these pages, which include a page on pan-Africanism, uplifting the beauty of black women, another on holistic health, are all what might be termed on the left side or progressive side of the political spectrum, including one D.C.-based effort to counter the Unite the Right rally planned for August 12th here in front of the White House. Andrew Batcher, an organizer with Shut It Down D.C., the umbrella group organizing the counter-protest, and that had co-sponsored the Facebook page, has appeared on, on the ground in the past on this show to describe anti-fascist organizing 
Not only are he and other organizers real people and not bots, Facebook has, in in effect, disrupted their anti-fascist organizing. Several media outlets, including the New York Times, ran prominent stories depicting the anti-Unite the Right protesters here as pawns of Russian influence, not as opposers of white supremacy. In an interview with the Huffington Post, Batcher said, quote, the really harmful part of it is the slander of it. The idea that people are thinking that this real legitimate protest is being organized by Russian bots. That's an incredibly irresponsible story to be telling, end quote. Local organizers had to create a new page that's titled Hate Not Welcome, colon, No Unite the Right To. The page already has more than 1,800 Facebook users listed as attending or interested in attending. Now, Saturday Night Live writer Nimesh Patel takes the stage for the Comedy for Climate Benefit Friday, August 3rd through Sunday, August 5th at the Comedy Loft in Northwest D.C., Comedy for the Climate is an ongoing series of shows that support the work of several organizations working for environmental justice, including Chesapeake Climate Action Network, the Sunrise Movement, and 350 DC. And finally, 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 the Movement for Black Lives DC is among the activists nationwide preparing for the annual National Night Out for Safety and Liberation on Tuesday, August 7th. The DC event, which will include food, art, music, performances, and conversation, is 5 to 9 p.m. at the Maroon House, 1005 Rhode Island Avenue in Northeast DC. Night Out for Safety and Liberation was started after the murder of Trayvon Martin by George Zimmerman, who was on Neighborhood Watch patrolling a Florida housing development and was suspicious of Trayvon. Organizers say that National Night Out for Safety and Liberation is an opportunity to build a vision for what safety is for black people, workers, people with disabilities, immigrants, Latinx folks, indigenous people, Muslims, LGBTQIA folks and all oppressed communities. The website for Night Out for Safety and Liberation is nosl.us. That's nosl.us. And those are all of our headlines and happenings. When we come back, World News with Gerald Horn. Stay with us. Someone who shares all of the joy of family, one who believes we can be free, yes, we can be free. Live off the land, yes. 
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. And now for more on what's happening internationally, I'm joined by On the Ground's well-traveled news analyst, Gerald Horn, the prolific author and professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston. And Gerald, I want to first ask about the elections in Zimbabwe. It broke late Thursday night that Emerson M. Nangangwa was declared the winner and the opposition was uh, denouncing the results as fake. Well, recall that this election comes in the wake of the post-November 2017 coup that was not a coup that deposed long-time, long-term leader Robert Mugabe, who had come to office in 1980 and served until November 2017. The United States, of course, along with its uh, NATO allies, are favorable to the opposition, the movement for democratic change. The question is, when the United States and its allies now welcome Zimbabwe back into their circle and restrict and restrain punishing sanctions in light of this election. Uh, Listeners may know that the United States and its allies had been angry with Mr. Mnangagwa's party, ZANU-PF, because of land reform, uh, that is to say land that took property away from the European minority, and Zimbabwe has been betrayed in the press as the epitome of human rights violations, which sweeps under the rug even worse situations in Cameroon, Equatorial Guinea, and other African nations too numerous to mention. The situation was so bad at one point during Mr. Mugabe's reign that even Nobel laureate uh, Desmond Tutu, who we had thought was a man of peace, was calling for an invasion of Zimbabwe and regime change. Uh, These tensions and sanctions helped to drive the Zimbabwean economy into the ditch, leading to punishing world-class hyperinflation that the implementers of the sanctions thought would lead to a mass uprising against ZANU-PF. Even many of our friends in the left in the United States attacked the land reform, which they said uh, benefited a narrow circle of elitists, But the scholarship tends to belie that notion. I'm speaking of the study by the British scholar Ian Schoons, who suggested that the land redistribution was much wider than some of our friends on the left had imagined. And in any case, it ignored the current nature of political economy globally, where the United States basically threatened to blow up the world some 25-odd years ago during the uh, reign of the socialist camp unless ruling parties globally moved away from state control. And that led to the Soviet Union surrendering and turning over its economy to a bunch of oligarchs. That led to China seeking to retain control by turning over a good deal of its economy to those who were close to the relatives and friends of the ruling Communist Party. In South Africa, as you know, the president, Sir Ramaphosa, also happens to be one of the richest men in the country. And Cuba, of course, refused to adopt this model and has suffered as a result. Now, with regard to this election, the neighbors, the Southern African Development Community, gave a thumbs up to these elections. It'll be curious to see uh, how much weight that carries in the U.S. press. One of the problems with the Zimbabwe election is that most of the observers are in 
the urban areas like Bulawayo and Harare, uh, even though those are opposition strongholds, and even though the bulk of the population lives in the countryside, where A, the ZANU-PF is stronger, and B, there is lingering resentment to the fact that the European minority abused the Zimbabwean peasants for decades before they were expropriated. I should also say that South Africa is looking very nervously at these events in Zimbabwe because they're moving towards land reform of their own. And in fact, in South Africa, they've enunciated a slogan that I hope is copied on this side of the Atlantic, EWC, expropriation without compensation. That's what masses are saying in South Africa with regard to the European minority that controls the land, and that's what we should be saying to the 1% on this side of the Atlantic. Now, part of the problem in Zimbabwe is that the opposition knew that it had the United States behind it, and therefore there was considerable unrest in the wake of the fact that ZANU-PF seemed to be ahead in terms of the count. Uh, one of the questions that we should be asking sooner rather than later is, should be posed to Congresswoman Karen Bass of the Congressional Black Caucus, who was one of the observers, and it'll be interesting to see what she has to say with regard to what she observed during these elections in Zimbabwe. Well, also related to Africa, I was really disturbed by a report by Save the Children this week detailing that girls, young women are being sexually exploited and abused as they try to pass from Italy into France. And they're saying these are very young, some of these are very young girls, and they're particularly at risk if they can't afford the the money asked by drivers in exchange for a lift across the border. And that this situation has been exacerbated by the fact that there was a makeshift camp at the Roya River that was cleared in April, and then since then the the migrant children had been forced to live on the streets and, you know, in very degrading, um, what they said are degrading, promiscuous, and dangerous conditions. And I think that you and I have also already talked about uh, the girls and very young women being exploited in other parts of Italy, including Rome. Well, this is one more aspect of the disastrous 2011 invasion of Libya and the overthrow of the Gaddafi regime, which has turned Libya into a state of chaos and has provided a gateway for Africans to try to sail across the Mediterranean, particularly into Italy. And a significant percentage of those sailing across the Mediterranean are not only drowning in those choppy seas, but many of the women, as your comment suggests, then are exploited sexually by these prostitution rings in particular that have popped up in Italy. In fact, uh, we were talking about the report from RT that went into the, this idea that there are women from a certain area in Nigeria who are particularly vulnerable, I'm afraid to say, with regard to what I've just sketched. Now, the larger context is the growth of neo-fascist trends and racist trends in Italy itself, particularly after the last election. And you may recall that a leader of the neo-fascists in Italy 
of late has been quoting the original founder of fascism, speaking of Benito Mussolini, recall as well that the current prime minister of Italy was just in Washington conferring with Donald J. Trump in their dual press conference. Both congratulated the other with regard to their strong and rather reactionary approach to the question of immigration. Interestingly enough, it was only the prime minister of Italy who expressed sympathy for those in California who were being subjected to the spate of wildfires. Uh, Mr. Trump had nothing to say about that, protect, I guess because he lost California by 3 million votes. But in any case, this uh, rise of neo-fascism in Italy in particular is the important context that we need to understand if we're going to ever understand what's happening to these African women in Italy in particular. Okay, well, I guess continuing somewhat uh, with Europe, uh, I know that there are continuing uh, discussions and analysis around Donald Trump's about face with his uh, relationship to the EU and his trade policies. Well, about a week ago Wednesday, there was a meeting in the Oval Office between Jean-Claude Juncker, who is the president of the European Com- uh, Commission, the executive arm of the European Union. And in their dual press conference, you saw a shift, a rhetorical shift by Mr. Trump from attacking the EU. And now we see this week that it appears as if the EU and the United States are shifting and are now going to jointly gang up on China. Now, the context, as you know, is this post-Helsinki flap where the Democrats were charging treason with regard to Mr. Trump's soft line or interpreted soft line concerning Russia. Of course, he's been uh, pouring arms into uh, Ukraine, uh, basically directed towards the neo-fascists there who are opposing Moscow. But in any case, Mr. Trump seems to have adopted the Democratic Party strategy of the United States and the European Union uniting against Russia and China, uh, an apparent surrender uh, by uh, Mr. Trump. I guess the question I have is, why did many of the Negro liberals join in pushing for this EU-US gang up on China? I'm trying to figure out what are their constituencies gain from this apparent consolidation of the two citadels of what could be considered white power, the United States and the European Union, it exposes the peril, it seems to me, of tailing after the Democrats, not unlike that unlimited invasion of Libya in 2011, which was cooked up by the Democratic Party and the then occupant of the White House, Mr. Obama, and has been a devastating blow to Africa in particular. And I guess in light of the recent passing of now late Congressman Ronald V. Dellums of Berkeley, Oakland, we need to ask ourselves, uh, what would uh, Congressman Dellums do in such a circumstances? Right, I was going to ask you that. (laughs) Well, you know, it's interesting to note that his successor, Congresswoman Barbara Lee of Oakland, Berkeley, number one, her district is only 20% black. And number two, she happens to be one of the strongest anti-war, pro-peace voices in Congress. And we have to ask ourselves, why is it that other Congressional Black Caucus members do not address foreign policy as consistently 
as Congresswoman Lee, even though I think that they could do so since their districts are more heavily black than Congresswoman Lee's district. I'm speaking of, for example, your own Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton, uh, Hakeem Jeffries of Brooklyn, the current darling of the New York Times, Cedric Richmond of New Orleans, the head of the CBC, and of course, Congresswoman Karen Bass, who will have a lot of questions to pose to her when she returns from that mission in Zimbabwe. Maybe we should definitely make it a point to follow up with her or follow whatever report she puts out. Well, I hope so. Okay. Well, I've been speaking with our geopolitical analysts, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you very much for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. The way to be paradise life relaxing Black, Latino, and Anglo-Saxon Armani exchange the range Cash, lost tribal Shabazz Free at last, brand new whips to crash Then we laugh in the illa path The villa houses for the crew, how we do Trees for breakfast, dime sexes have been stretches So many years of depression make me vision The better living, type of place to raise kids in Opening eyes to the lies, history's told foul But I'm as wise as the old owl Plus the gold child, seeing things like I was controlling Click rolling, tricking six digits on kicks and still holding trips to Paris. I civilized every savage. Give me one shot, I turn tripe life to lavish. Political prisoner, set free, stress free. No work release, purple M3s and jet skis. Feel the wind breeze in West Indies. I think Coretta Scott King, mayor the cities in reverse things to Willie's. It sound foul, but every girl I meet to go downtown. I'd open every cell in Attica, send them to Africa. Imagine that. We got phone calls from the community in mid-May when people started frantically seeing that families crossing over the border were being systematically separated. And these parents were coming into criminal court and sobbing and asking about their, their children. And so our team has been in McAllen criminal court every single day. And, and McAllen is located in the Rio Grande Valley. And we have been to these parents, interviewing them before their criminal arraignment, getting their information. Uh, we've been using that information to do a couple of things. We have an ongoing proceeding with something called the Inter-American Commission for Human Rights. We are representing all of these parents in that proceeding, trying to stop family separations. In addition, we have been working to track these families figure out where everybody is, get everybody connected with underlying immigration counsel, and then use uh, communications advocacy and, um, and, and relying on people like, like yourselves to make sure that their stories are heard. To date, we represent 381 parents, um, and they have uh, collectively 397 children. And so that is a significant number of the roughly 2,000 families who uh, have been separated to date. And so because of our experience, um, 
I can speak to you personally about the stories we've heard. Uh, I, I know my time is short this morning, so I will keep it brief, but I would, um, would like to tell everybody that you know, both of the, as a career civil rights attorney and as a mom, these are some of the most horrific things I have ever heard. Um, one of the first stories we heard in May that prompted us to um, embark on, on this initiative was a mother who told us that after fleeing violence, um, she was told by Border Patrol agents that they were going to give her young daughter a bath and her, her young daughter was never brought back to her. We've heard from more recently from a, a dad from Guatemala who's raised his daughter himself since she was a, a very, very young. Fleeing violence, they came into this country and he was told basically with a um, very short period of time that he was going to be separated from his daughter. And so he told her she was going to summer camp to try to alleviate her fears. And um, she walked away excited. And, and now he is just racked with guilt. He has no idea where she is or how she's being treated. We've heard from lots of mothers who have endured unspeakable things, um, including and especially rape. Um, we've also was told by one mother how gangs uh, brutally murdered her husband. She then fled with her herself and her 11-year-old son. Once she got to the border, she um, told agents that she feared for her life because her husband had been murdered. And uh, she was told that she was going to be deported and that she'd never see her son ever again. Um, the, the last story I will share is that we very recently learned that one of the fathers who we interviewed has been deported back to Guatemala and his, um, his children are still here in the United States. I, um, again, can assure you that these um, to me personally, these stories are the stuff of nightmares, and I uh, have been um, warmed, I think, to see the American people in the last couple of weeks, to see leaders like yourself pay attention to this incredible issue. And even now, when, when the situation is changing rapidly, to continue to be vigilant and, um, and continue to demand questions. Uh, and we're now turning to the Director of Policy, National Immigration, Immigrant Justice Center, Heidi Altman. I'm going to speak today a bit about um, the story of one woman whose tale um, feels like it should be an outlier, but unfortunately is actually quite illustrative of what many hundreds and thousands of families are facing. One of the mothers our organization is representing, um, as well as children, we represent on both sides in ICE and um, DHHS custody. Gabriella, as I'm going to call her today, can't be here herself because she is behind the very thick walls and concertina wires of a big uh, private prison-operated immigration detention center in San Diego, the Otay Mesa Detention Center. Gabriella has been telling me that it's difficult for her to sleep at night because she can't stop crying. Um, the officers at the facility um, offered her sleeping pills, but she has stopped taking them because they make what, what she calls the pain in her heart worse. What she's tormented by is the memory of the moment when she saw her 12-year-old son for the last time. 
she's desperate to talk to him. Um, and what I could feel very palpably when I last spoke with her is that um, with every day that goes by, she believes, and, and I think with reason, uh, based on her experience, that our government has not taken her child from her temporarily, but permanently. She fears that he'll be taken away from her forever. This terror weighs very physically on her. You can see when you look at her that she is sunken in. And she has already survived so much. So Gabriela fled years of brutal violence at the hands of her domestic partner in El Salvador. She had to bury her firstborn child, who died at the age of three. Um, she fought to escape the violence in her home, only to be confronted by more violence. When she refused to be the forced girlfriend of a gang leader in her neighborhood, uh, men broke into her home, sexually assaulted her, left her son traumatized. She attempted suicide shortly after that, but she survived, and she turned to protecting her family immediately. She rallied herself. She rallied her son, and she fled. She did the only thing she knew to protect her child and brought him here to the United States. Where their journey ended was when they were stopped by a Border Patrol officer, and they were taken for processing at a CBP facility. She was taken to one room, her son taken to another, she realized that she was looking at one-way glass so she could see her son, but he couldn't see her. She was told that she was going to be taken to a federal facility because she was being charged with illegal entry. She could see her son was crying. She couldn't say goodbye to him. She wasn't permitted even to explain to him why they were being separated. She, she began pleading to the officer to please allow them to stay together, and she remembers that she said, he's just a child, and this Border Patrol officer mocked her in response and said, looking at this 12-year-old boy, no, he's grown. So now it's been two months since Gabriella last saw her child. When I saw her on Friday still in ICE custody, she had been permitted to speak with him one time. She has a phone number where she uses her own funds to try to reach him in the custody of Office of Refugee Resettlement. When she calls, the number rings and rings. She tells me that she doesn't eat sometimes because she fears that if she leaves the area of the jail where the phones are, she'll miss somehow a phone call from him. This basic inability to connect via phone or video conference with her child is very common across the parents and the children we see in ICE and ORR custody, as is the fact that Gabriella went weeks before she even knew where her child was. Uh, thank you very much. We appreciate that. And we're going to now turn uh, to Ms. Uh, Donya Underwood, Director of Children and Family Services for the Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service. Since 2017, Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service has been monitoring instances of family separation at our southern border. We have placed 148 children since that time and almost 50 who were under the age of five. Um, I would, at this time, I would like to tell you about um, two of these young children. The first story is about a girl that I'll call Sophia. In March 2018, Sophia, now nine months, was taken from her father, Jose, as they crossed the Mexico-U.S. border. While Jose was detained at the Rio Grande Detention Center in Laredo, Texas, his infant daughter was transferred to an LIRS short-term foster care program. After multiple failed attempts to connect Jose in the detention facility, Sophia's foster care case manager um, was finally able to reach Jose. 
During this call, Sophia's father shared that he was extremely worried because he did not know where Sophia had been taken. Sophia was too young to share her uh, story and information about herself, so her case manager went to work trying to locate um, her father. Sophia's mother in Honduras um, shared information about herself, so the case manager went to work to locate Sophia's mother actually in Honduras and additional family members in the U.S. Once reaching Sophia's mother, Maria described how Sophia and her father crossed the border to find safety after Jose faced political persecution for his membership and support for a certain political party in Honduras. Two months prior to Sophia's journey to the U.S. with her father, says Maria, her mother, the family's car was set aflame. Fearing further retaliation and harm to Sophia, her family arranged for her journey to the United States. Maria made the agonizing, the agonizing decision not to take the perilous journey with her then six-month-old daughter, Sophia, because she needed to remain in Honduras to care for her ailing mother. The second story I will quickly share with you is about Catalina. So in May 2018, Catalina, a three-year-old um, girl from Honduras, crossed the border in Laredo, Texas with her father, her mother, and nine-month-old brother. Upon apprehension, Catalina was removed from her mother's arm while her mother and brother were separated and detained together and her father separated and detained at the Rio Grande Detention Center. Shortly after being taken from her family, Catalina again was, Catalina was placed in a Alera short-term foster care program. When Catalina arrived, she was noticeably impacted by her separation from her mom, dad, and baby brother. While trying to tell her story, Catalina was despondent, crying and easily upset. Although multiple contacts were made in an attempt to reach Catalina's father in detention in the detention facility, facility staff did not connect the case manager to Catalina's father, nor did they relay messages to her father to facilitate communication. And uh, now Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris. Good afternoon. My name is Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris, and I'm a pediatrician and the founder and CEO of the Center for Youth Wellness, a health organization created to advance the research and clinical care of toxic stress in children. You don't have to be a doctor to recognize that a child being forcibly separated from their parents' care faces long-term psychological and emotional harm. But we now know this type of trauma left unaddressed, can more than double an individual's risk for asthma, autoimmune disease, chronic lung disease, and cancer, and can cut their life expectancy short by decades. Research from the CDC, Kaiser Permanente, and many others demonstrates that adverse childhood experiences, like being forcibly separated from a parent or caregiver, substantially increases the risk for negative physical and psychological outcomes, both in the short term and later in life. Here's why. When any one of us experiences something scary or threatening, our brains and bodies activate our stress response system that leads to the production of high levels of stress hormones, including adrenaline and cortisol, and is responsible for many of the feelings that we associate with being terrified. The amygdala, the brain's fear center, is activated, 
And the prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for executive functioning, including judgment and impulse control, is inhibited. Stress hormones stimulate our hearts to beat stronger and faster, raise our blood pressure and blood sugar, and activate our immune system, among many other effects. The stress response is a normal and, in fact, essential part of our biological processes and allow us to respond and adapt to challenging circumstances. However, children facing severe stress require the nurturing care of a trusted adult to shut off the stress response and restore normal functioning. Without this nurturing buffer, the biological stress response becomes overactive. Children are uniquely vulnerable to the effects of an overactive stress response because their brains and bodies are just developing. High levels of adversity without the buffering protection of a trusted caregiver leads to changes in brain structure and function, weakening of the immune system, impairment of hormonal levels, and these changes are what is now recognized by the American Academy of Pediatrics as the toxic stress response. Toxic stress can literally change the way a child's DNA is read and transcribed, leading to long-term health effects. A nurturing caregiver is critical for interrupting this biological process. Nurturant caregiving regulates levels of cortisol and adrenaline and other stress hormones and releases healthy hormones, including oxytocin, that protect a child's developing brain and cardiovascular system. As parents, when our children face something uh, scary, such as a scary experience or injury, we instinctively hold them close. That loving hug releases the hormone oxytocin, which inhibits the stress response and helps to deactivate this biological process. Many of the children coming to our borders have already been traumatized, health crisis in the making. In my clinic in San Francisco, I see the effects of toxic stress every day. The physical and emotional risks to these children are real. In infants and young children, it can manifest as failure to thrive, sleep disturbance, and developmental delay, as well as increased risk for viral infection, bacterial infection such as pneumonia, and other illnesses. In school-age children and adolescents, we see increased inflammation, hypersensitivities such as allergies, eczema, and asthma, autoimmune disease, obesity, pubertal changes, as well as disorders of mood, behavior, and learning. At the Center for Youth Wellness, we've been pioneering multidisciplinary treatments for toxic stress. And while there's still much work to be done, the evidence demonstrates promising interventions to help regulate an overactive stress response and improve outcomes for kids. Step one is minimizing the dose of adversity to which children are exposed. And step two is enhancing the buffering capacity of their trusted caregivers to help them regulate their stress response. The executive order to end the damaging practice of unnecessarily removing vulnerable children from the buffering protection of their trusted caregivers was an important first step. 
However, we have an obligation to address the harms that are currently facing the children who have already been subject to this policy. Without intervention, they are at high risk for both short and long-term health consequences. Thank you for this opportunity to share the science of toxic stress, and I ask that you use this science to inform your actions on behalf of the American people. You have been listening to Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris speaking before a Senate congressional hearing chaired by Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon on June 27, 2018. And before Harris, Donna Underwood, Director of Children and Refugee Services for Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services, Heidi Altman, Director of Policy for the National Immigrant Justice Center, and Mimi Marziani of the Texas Civil Rights Project. All were speaking on the impact of separating hundreds of migrant children from their parents, even snatching infants from their parents' arms. Now, here at the start of August, more than 700 migrant children are still separated from their parents, including more than 400 children whose parents have already been deported by the Trump administration. And of those 400, 90 children whose parents cannot be located at all by the administration. And that will do it for today's show. I want to thank Gerald Horn and our summer interns who contributed to today's show. It's their last week with me, and I wish them the best as they all head out to be seniors in high school. Nicholas Aponza, Shaylin Parham, Ezra Reed, and David Williams. The music we played this hour included Healing by the Black Joy Experience, produced by BYP 100, I think in honor of their fifth anniversary as an organization. And Nas, If I Ruled the World, that I played in honor of his appearance at this weekend's Summer Spirit Festival in Columbia, Maryland. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can reach us and listen to a complete version of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On the Ground Show and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Find us at WPFW on the ground. I'm Esther Averam. Until next week, keep raising your voice. Peace. <laughs>